Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Afternoon, everyone. We all sound like we've been battling colds and stuff this week. I know mine was worse than about Wednesday. Still got a little bit sniffles, but seem to be going away. Caitlin's in bed. Her cough's really bad today, so she couldn't make it. Glad to see everybody here. Bring greetings from uh, Clarence and Jean. I spoke to them last night from Newfoundland. Uh, they said hello to everybody. Still talking about what a good feast they had. Uh, Bruce and Anne, remember Bruce and Anne from Indiana, uh, tall man and his wife was uh, short black hair. Uh, talk, exchanged some messages with him this week. And uh, Joe and Mary from Windsor, uh, still wondering when we're going to be doing something together. In fact, uh, got a message this week from the folks in United and Kitchener inviting the CGI Kitchener brethren to their social next week. So hopefully we're uh, um, starting to make a little bit headway there. Uh, if there's an opportunity for us to go up uh, next week, I'll send that out in, a, in an email if you're interested. On October 3rd, 1789, George Washington issued the following proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor, and whereas both houses of Congress have, by their joint committee, requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being, who is the beneficent author of all that, all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favor, able interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled, been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty which we, with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general, for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, and to bless them with good governments, peace and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. That is the President of the United States, the first President, issuing the Thanksgiving Proclamation in 1789, completely uh, owing their favor, their divine, their divine providence to the hand of Almighty God. A number of years later, 74 to be exact, President Abraham Lincoln issued the following decree. Whereas the Senate of the United States devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations has by a resolution requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, 
to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of wealth and, uh, of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become all too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that has made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do, by this my proclamation, designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a national day of prayer, humiliation, and fasting. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devote the, to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and in truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness thereof, whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be fixed. So not just, as George Washington did, set apart a day of thanksgiving, but Abraham Lincoln setting apart a day of fasting and prayer and doing so on a business day where he shut business down for an entire day and told people to go to their churches and to pray and to fast and to seek God's divine guidance and forgiveness in their lives because the nation was on a path that he could see was going against the Holy Scriptures. I don't even want to read President Obama's latest, the most recent proclamation for the National Day of Prayer. There have been... As I, I followed the proclamations for the annual National Days of Prayer, they go from being completely scriptural to opening it up to, to uh, no repentance and keeping, making sure you honor whatever God it is that you choose to honor, setting aside a little bit of time on a certain day to do this. But we see this day here that Abraham Lincoln, he shut business down so that the entire nation could have a National Day of Prayer. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. When we think of prayer, our minds likely fall upon this model prayer. Just by way of introduction, I'd like to go there. It's Christ's example to us. Not necessarily to repeat verbatim, but to be used as a guide. Our Father in heaven, verse 8, let's pick it up there. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, this model prayer has been, in studies, has been taken apart, and we could do that today, which we're not going to do. Typically in our culture, we are private with our prayers. We pray publicly at services. We pray, pray publicly for meals. We pray publicly for anointings. We are becoming more comfortable with a little bit of intercessory prayer as a congregation. Consider the thoughts of these two great leaders that we read. 
and how they viewed prayer on a national scale. It wasn't just praying to God, but it was, it was out of humility, there was repentance, there was forgiveness, there was thankfulness. They ran the whole gamut, understanding that it was God's providence that allowed them to be where they were, free from the oppression that they felt they had back in, in England, and now over here, free to worship their God, free to start anew. And they realized that it was by his divine providence, and that as a nation, they owed it together as a nation to be a nation of prayer. So much so that they set aside Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving wasn't initially about Turkey and, and going shopping on the day after, which we do now. It was about being a prayerful nation. And then furthermore, during the, the height of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln realized we need, we need forgiveness as a nation. We need to be close together as a nation before God. All, the, all trying to drive the home the point that prayer should be the foundation of their nation. That nothing else but prayer before Almighty God should be the foundation of their nation. When things were right, the entire nation should remember that it is God's doing. We see that pointed out in their proclamations. When things were going badly, which is what drove them to this, at the, at the, which is what drove Lincoln to his, his proclamation, Washington's was at the height of, of, of their, their independence. So this was great as they, 1789 was the year that they ratified the Constitution. They became an actual nation. Uh, it, was, it took 13 years for them to go from the point of signing the Declaration of Independence to becoming a full-fledged nation that set up a Senate and a Congress. And the actual, the actual nation itself began in 1789. So this was to start their brand new nation. So his, his proclamation for prayer was at the b- very beginning of the nation. Uh, Lincoln's was more during the height of the Civil War, which we know was one of the low points in American history where they were, they, there was so much infighting. So uh, both men, understanding that the, the benefits of the nation, that they should remember God's providence when things were going well, and that they, sh- they should remember to get back to God in humility, repentance as a nation, seeking a closer relationship with him, to make possible repentance and forgiveness. All this done under the scope of nationhood, that the entire nation was told that this is what they should do, that their leader, this is what they had to do. Again, I don't even want to bore you with the empty, the short and empty proclamations of the most recent, and this is not just President Obama, this is, this is, is going back some number of years, the short and very empty proclamations of today's annual National Day of Prayer. It calls to mind Isaiah 56, Isaiah chapter 56. As you turn there, just remind you that as Isaiah is prophesying to Judah here in the mid-700s B.C., long before the captivity, he speaks of how it should and will be once people come back to fully worship God. And once they realize that they need to fully come back, he was started to preach during the reign of Uzziah and some of the other evil kings. Here, as we read, he even opens the door to non-Israelites who would desire to become a part of the covenant. Notice what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house. And within my walls a place and a name, better than that of sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt sacrifices... Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. God's temple should be a house of prayer. When you look up the meaning of that word, nothing hidden or mysterious about it. Supplication, praise, prayer from the Hebrew but a house of prayer for all people. A house of prayer for all nations is what he says. Whoever comes here 
God says, should know that they are coming to a house that prays and prays only to the God of Israel. So today, as we build on the, the festival theme of community, which Pastor Adrian continued and kept going last week, and which we will continue to strive towards as we combine our men's and women's fellowship into that family fellowship in the next six months, I would like to examine this notion of God's house being a house of prayer. What does that mean? What does it mean for God's house to be a house of prayer? How does it impact our family sitting here today? And more importantly, how can we become a better family by understanding what it means to be a house of prayer? Let's go to where the scripture reading was, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. The setting is Passover week. We see just before this that this was Christ's triumphant return into Jerusalem. This story that we're going to read follows right on the heels of that. And as Christ is re-entering Jerusalem, he takes a side trip into the temple. And we see this. Verse 15, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught them, taught, saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. We just read that in Isaiah 56. But you have made it a den of thieves. You can jot down that that's in Jeremiah 7, verse 11. So he brought in two prophecies to these people that were making merchandise of God's people in his holy place, reminding them that the purpose of his house was to be a house of prayer. But they were, from a negative sense, making it a den of thieves. We see here how the cleansing of the temple is directly linked to the reminder that God's house should be one of prayer. We've discussed both here and at the feast the need to continue to build our temple, both as individuals and when we read in 1 Corinthians 3, both here and at the feast, that the congregation is a temple. When people walk into our community, they're walking into a temple of God because what a temple really is is a place where God dwells where his people come to worship him, a physical focal point where God's people can come and worship him. That we should not be satisfied with our individual temples because we are not yet complete. Neither should we be satisfied with our temple as God defines us as a group because our family is not yet complete. Our temple can be better. But the point is that before he proceeded through the crucifixion process, Christ made a point to cleanse his father's house with a reminder that it should be a house of prayer. So at this point, as we move into the, the, the rest of the message, let's re- keep in mind that Christ cleansed the temple and reminded everybody it should be a house of prayer. So I think we can all agree on the importance of prayer. Daily prayer as we proceed through our lives. And as people here... We've all devoted ourselves to God. Prayer is the foundation of our relationship with God. I'm not going to waste time by going through scriptures here just to fill some time to show that we should be praying and that it's important. I think we can all agree that praying to God is is a foundational element of our lives. That it is part of of who we are. It makes up part of our natural daily routine. Whatever that means to you, however it is for you, we can Go to scriptures and see that David or Daniel prayed three times a day. We can see that Christ was in constant communication with his father and often removed himself from situations so that he could go off and be by himself and pray to his father. He prayed in front of his disciples. He taught his disciples how to pray. We have the example of the model prayer which we went through. We have the, the example of the vain Pharisee who prayed vainly and proudly about how great he was, contrasted with the example of the publican who did so in in humiliation. 
We don't even know at that point whether he was sinning or had anything to be humbled for or humiliated for, but he understood how to pray. So agreeing that prayer is one of our basic needs, as basic as breathing is for human beings, I'd like to take a quick look at the Psalms before we proceed into the actual point outside of the Psalms. We know that the Psalms are a series of prayers set to music, which form the basis of the hymns that are part of our liturgy. Consider this, and everybody, I've been very well documented that I'm reading the Bible through, and I happen to have just finished the Psalms. And as I came across this, this passage in Mark 11, through a sermon I was listening to, it was, it was something else that it was about. But the comment was made about how God cleansed his temple to become a house, so that it could be reminded to be a house of prayer. I would happen to be in the middle of reading the Psalms. Consider this. David lived for only 70 years. He was a king for 40. Much of his time, much of his time was spent as a warrior. We know how, when you read the passage, how much time he spent as a warrior. He had eight wives, multiple children. We know uh, uh, much of the the story around David. Yet, he wrote at least 74 psalms. 74 psalms that he put to music. 74 of the 150 are specifically attributed to David. 34 have no attribution at all. It could be David, it could be someone else. And these are just the ones that are uh, saved in the Holy Writ. Ray writes music. We know he's probably written 20 or 25 songs that we know about. There's likely 100 songs that have come through his, his, his pen and keyboard, 300 songs. And that's, but not all of them, in his mind, worthy enough to put down on paper or worthy enough to share with us or worthy enough to record but the songs that have come through raise mind. We can assume from David that being one, a man of music and a man of prayer, there were more than 74. It stands to reason. We can't prove it. It's just my opinion. But David, amongst his entire busy life of, of being a king, of being a warrior, of being a husband of eight wives at various points, all the children that he had, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. His music helped him become a man of prayer. But he was a man of prayer. When we go through them, when we, t- when we take time to go through the Psalms, we see exactly what it means to be a person of prayer. There are various studies. I won't bore you with them here today. But when the Psalms are broken down, and as, as you likely have done, likely have seen, there's an emotion of every kind in the Psalms. There's praise to God. There's looking upon God as creator. There's looking upon, uh, upon the Messiah. There is looking back in history and thanking God for seeing them through. There's looking back on history and repenting and, and can't believe that our forefathers have done this to you and you continue to be there for us. There's a repentance. There's, there's uh, trying to avoid curses. There's wisdom psalms. There are uh, psalms of ascent, which we talked about before the feast, which is a simple praise as they marched on the, the path to Jerusalem. There's worship songs, there's complaints, there's not understanding, God, why you're doing this to me, but we have full trust in you somehow, that we know your divine providence, that you'll see us through. When you go through the Psalms, there is emotion of every kind, of every kind. Let's just crack it open somewhere, and let's crack it open. We'll start in 102, Psalms 102. This is a prayer for mercy. Hear my prayer, verse 1, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily, for my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake, and I am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. By the remembrance of your name to all generations, you will arise and have mercy on Zion. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. 
So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. A prayer, we can, and we're just picking random verses here. A prayer here of complete and utter mercy. That sometimes we're in a state in our lives that we don't know why we're going through this. It's likely could be something that Job felt for sure. But just understanding that God's divine providence, that somehow he will see us through. The next one, Psalms 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all, our, all your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. He acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Hear his righteousness as judge. God's divine righteousness. We talked a little bit about, about uh, judgment and justice at the feast. God is the ultimate purveyor of righteous judgment. And here, what was once someone writing a, a psalm before that one of, of destitution and, and, and being at the bottom, of, bottom point of their life, here it's just a, a praise to God as righteous judge. Next page, Psalms 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beam of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wing, wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, at your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may return to cover the earth. God, our great creator, when we're walking and you're going for a hike somewhere in the woods or you're at the feast on the beach, it's a high point of your life. And yet you can still, like George Washington said, tap into God at the height of your life. When things are good, not forget that it is God who is creator, that it is God who set this beautiful earth. And as we, as we reminded ourselves in the youth study, that he has a purpose for mankind, right from the very beginning, that mankind was special, and he gave us dominion over this beautiful earth. 106. 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So this is a psalm of praise, recognizing God's greatness in their lives, but... We now proceed into a historical context. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered the enemy. The enemies, there was not one of them left. They believed, then they believed his words and they sang his praise. And it continues on. We won't take time to do that for this one. But it goes back in their history and realizing just how great God was in their lives. That, that they are sitting here in comfort at the point of this writing. Greatness with God, God's glory. But reminding themselves how merciful God was in, in bringing them through the sins of their past. He continues in 107 with similar sentiments. God's love manifested throughout history. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, 
whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted of them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And continues on with a, with a, a, a memory of history of how God was great and his love was manifested to them. One last one here, because we're just proceeding along here. Psalms 108. An assurance that he will protect and guide us. So we see this vast array of emotions, and we haven't even covered, we've covered six or seven of them. We can, we can recall Psalms 51, you don't need to turn there. David's, the depth of his repentance. Psalms 103, or Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalms 22, talking about the magnificence of the Messiah. There's just that range of emotions that is covered in the Psalms for people that have dedicated their lives to God. This exercise can be done anywhere in the Psalms. You can start anywhere in the Psalms and see the vast differences in the range of emotions. And as I read through them, as I read through them, I stand amazed at people like David. To have this much depth in his praise, with all that was going on around him, with the, the, the family strife that he inflicted upon himself, with the, the, the national stress that was on him as, as, the, as the king, as a warrior. Throughout all his life, he was assuredly a man of prayer. A man that just didn't put in his 20 minutes, but he was a man of prayer. Not just falling to his knees for 20 minutes in the morning, but he was in contact with God throughout the day. As things happened, he, he had to have been in contact with God throughout the day. One who spent his time in constant communication with God. Every possible circumstance, every possible emotion, Every possible need, every possible praise is covered in the pages of these psalms. We see doctrine. As you go through it, you see doctrine, you see law, creation, repentance, history, all touched in prayer. We can take a lesson from here in becoming better people of prayer. As individuals, we need to be God-centered in our lives. And if we are God-centered, we need to become more God-centered in our lives. Become people of prayer, despite all that goes on in our lives. So how does this reflect upon our community? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. I'd like to go through a couple of three Old Testament stories to get to the point of the message today. But before we do, I'd like to remind ourselves of the basic premise that we know that is covered here in a couple of scriptures. So 1 John chapter 4 to start. As we consider what the power of prayer does, for our community, for our family here. 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Clearly, our relationship with God is reflected, reflected precisely by our relationship with each other. God tells us we can't love him and not love our brothers and sisters. And that was reflected in Brother Ray's prayer. Well, what a joy it is to get together, just to be together. Part of, part of what makes us a, uh, what is a positive thing about being a community is we just get to be with our brothers and sisters. After a hard week, it's nice to walk in those doors and see each other. It makes, it's a, it's just makes the week good. It, it refreshes us. We go home from the Sabbath. I go home from the Sabbath as tired as I am, uh, absolutely and completely refreshed just by seeing your faces. Matthew 5. Matthew 5. This premise that our relationship with God is completely and precisely reflected by our relationship with each other. Here we look at the Sermon on the Mount, what, as we've said before, amounts to Christianity 101, the basics of Christianity, as Christ covers here in his first interaction with man from a, a teaching standpoint. Verse 22. 
let's start back in 21, start at the start of the thought. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. It's Matthew 5.21. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. By its inclusion here in the the start of Christianity, in this Sermon on the Mount, he includes this premise here as part of his first teachings. We see that it's basic in its context, that our love for each other is a basis for his teaching, that God doesn't even want us in his presence if we have something against a brother. That if there's something that is between members of, of the covenant, he prefer we don't offer, just leave it aside, go and make it right with your brother, then come back and be with me. Because you can't be with me properly and have something against a brother. So we see this basic premise as a community, that our relationships together as a community reflects our relationships with God. Now let's take a look at these three stories these three stories that form the the last part of the message here. We're going to read the stories first and sort of through inductive reasoning come to the point that we want to see here. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Genesis 12, verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. And so it was, when Abram came into Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman, and that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Verse 4, Jonah chapter 1 and in verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. And they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what, uh, of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? 
for the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. That's story two. Joshua chapter 7 is story 3. Joshua chapter 7. Verse 1. Joshua 7 and then verse 1. Following on the heels of the destruction of Jericho, the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to A, which is beside Beth Avon, on the east side of Bethel. And spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out A. I hope that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. And they returned to Joshua and said to them, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three hundred go up and attack A. Do not worry. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of A are few. So we just, we just did great things in Jericho. We don't need everybody on board for this. Just send a few hundred. Get up there. There's nothing there. If we took Jericho, this will be a piece of cake. Let's not, let's not uh, bog ourselves down here. Let's take the freshest amongst us, get up there, let's get this over with. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of A. And the men of A struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shevarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken from the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, that they also, they have also have put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before the enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be among you any more unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Dropping down to verse 20. You can finish the details there. And Achan answered Joshua, and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Abraham, uh, Abram's lie to Pharaoh, Jonah hiding out on that ship, and Achan, stealing and disobeying God. Do we see the connection here? Our actions, when we are not right, can bring harm on the community. Pharaoh was plagued because of Sarah, not because of anything Pharaoh did. The mariners were placed in the eye of the storm because Jonah was not right with God. The army of Israel lost an easy battle because one man put himself before God 
and the others. Our actions, both here and in private, can have an effect on how God blesses our congregation, our organization, and our organism, and the organism. We owe it to each other to be God-centered people of prayer because the health of our family hangs in the balance. We owe it to each other to be God-centered people. We owe it to each other to be people of prayer. We need to trust that when we walk through that door, this is a house of prayer, not just because we've instituted a little bit of intercessory prayer, not just because when the occasion provides, we may anoint publicly, not just because we have an opening and closing prayer, but because every individual here prays at home. And as part of this, this family, every individual is God-centered. That is a house of prayer. That is what makes us a house of prayer. There's a whole lot that can make us a house of prayer. But when we trust each other, that when we go home this week and some, something needs to be prayed about, you've all got my back. When Adrian had his, his, his uh, blood issue, Brother Gord's got his, his, uh, his gallbladder issue, he can trust that when we leave here, we're all praying for him because we're a house of prayer. Our community depends on us being God-centered. Our, our life hangs in the balance. Our life as a community hangs in the balance. First Kings chapter 8. We saw the negative side of that. It's easier to, to prove the negative by, looking, by proving the positive by sometimes looking at the negative. And those three stories were clear examples of how the actions of others can affect, the, the actions of one person can affect an entire group of people. First Kings chapter 8. We go here to the prayer of Solomon as he dedicates the temple. We'll pick it up at verse 22, 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon is just, the, the, the temple has just been finalized and they're having a prayer of dedication. Verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out the hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have spoken You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it in your hand, as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, and remember what he said in verse 22, remember what it says here, that it was in front of the entire assembly of Israel, the entire assembly this was being prayed in. And now I pray, O God, verse 26 of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened towards this temple night and day toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there. And you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Okay, one second. Teresa, take that. You got it? Verse, uh, back to verse uh, 29. That your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day, towards the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place, here in heaven and your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then here in heaven... And act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. And when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, and when they have turned your back to you and confess your name, 
and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. Bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. A public prayer, you can go on and we don't have time or we won't take the time to read the entire prayer. It goes all the way up to verse 53. But we see this prayer of Solomon for the entire house of Israel. That a commitment that as long as we follow God, as long as we follow you as a nation, bless us. And when we, we drop the ball and we come back to you with, forgive, with repentance, forgive us and make us right. Because that's what you told our father David. Chapter 9. After the end of the prayer, we see God's response. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house, verse 1, chapter 9, and all of Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. And remember, it was made before him in front of the entire assembly of Israel. And God said he heard it. I heard what you said. I heard what you asked. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? Then they will answer because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. God's message they, they succeed and fail together. I heard your prayer. I heard what you want. Follow me, and I'll bless you. And if any of you or your sons, if any of you or your sons turn their backs, there will be, you will, the entire world will see the consequences. A house of prayer. We can have public prayers together. They're all part of being a house of prayer. Part of what makes us a house of prayer is before, before the sermon, we pray together. We pray as individuals, and then when needed, we pray together for the health of one another, for whatever is affecting our church. It's often for sickness, but it can be to, for God's blessing on the feast. It can be God's blessing on our work. It can be God's blessing on our, our public Bible series. It can be on wherever our town halls lead us, whatever ventures we have as a community. We pray publicly together for God's blessing on our community. Congregationally, we become more comfortable praying together for initiatives, items that specifically affect our community. This is all part of being a house of prayer. Private prayer, we should have trust in each other that each of us is a person of prayer. So that when we come here, we're not just a community that prays together in public, but we know that each of us is doing our part so that together... We are a house of prayer. As individuals coming together, we have complete trust that each of us is God-centered. Anyone that comes into our midst should leave with no doubt that individually and collectively, we are a house of prayer. Let's, as we close, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and take a look at one of our chief mantras for our congregation and look at it in light of this notion of being a house of prayer. Being a house of prayer is much more than public prayer. But we're becoming better there too. We're becoming more comfortable with praying together in public. But it extends all the way to the privacy of our homes. We're together as a, a unit, as a unit, we are people of prayer. Verse 11 of Ephesians 4, in light of being a house of prayer, 
he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into the head him, into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body to the edifying of itself in love. When we commit to being people of prayer in our lives, we commit to being people of prayer for each other. So that as a family, we become a house of prayer. We become a house of prayer. Imagine if you would, the entire body of Christ hearing this proclamation. Whereas the body of Christ devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in the affairs of its members and of all congregations has by resolution requested and designated and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of congregations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the holy scriptures and proven by all history that those churches only are blessed whose God is the Lord and in so much as we know that by his divine his divine law congregations, like members, are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, but we may not justly fear that the awful calamity of our civil wars, which now desolate the the entire church, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of church-wide reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers Wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray together to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our church-wide sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the church, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart this day as a day of church-wide humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all people... I'm not doing this. This is just a, 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 a what-if. And I do request all members to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord, devoting to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and in truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of God's people will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our church-wide sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering body to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of Almighty God to be affixed. Imagine one day when all of God's people will be a house of prayer together. Let's commit to doing our part for ourselves, for our congregation, and the entire body of Christ by becoming a house of prayer. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.